Welcome to the Infrastructure Show. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Schofer of Northwestern University. The Infrastructure Show is designed to present to listeners the reality of America's infrastructure, its condition, why it is the way it is, and what can be done about it. We gratefully acknowledge contributions to sustain the Infrastructure Show from Dr. Robert Peskin, Dr. Raymond Ellis, and Andrea and Ron DeFeo. As a part of our occasional explorations into infrastructure history, we're talking about the Rural Electrification Act of 1936, which is a Depression-era program providing federal loans for the installation of electrical distribution systems to serve rural areas of the United States. The REA was, and still is, a national investment in electric power infrastructure. To learn about the impacts of the REA and what lessons it might have for federal investments to expand broadband access, we're talking with Price Fishback, who is APS Professor of Economics at the Eller College of Management of the University of Arizona. Professor Fishback is an expert on the political economy of Roosevelt's New Deal during the 1930s, both the determinants of New Deal spending and loans and their impact on local economies. Among his several international research connections, Professor Fishback is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. I'm very happy to be talking to you today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, so we'll have some fun with this. What, can you t- give us a, a, an overview of the REA and the motivations, goals, and what brought it about? The REA started out in response to, I mean, agriculture was having severe problems in the early 1930s, late 1920s. You know, World War One, we'd had an expansion. Then agricultural prices worldwide started to drop, and the United States was, try- was trying to stave off all these various problems. So in the early 30s, they came up with a AAA farm program, which paid farmers to take land out of production, and they came up with a farm credit administration. But one of the things they were worried about was uh, electricity. And so almost all the cities and towns were electrified by this time, but rural areas had virtually very little electrification unless they were very close to a city or a town. So maybe 2% of rural areas were electrified. Uh, and so they came up with the idea, of, well, well, let's come up with ways to stimulate the, the production of electricity in the, in the rural areas. And so they came up with a loan program where what they would do is they would loan the money out at about 2 or 3%. It was about the same rate as, the, as the, actually the Treasury bill rates and things like that for loans of similar length. And they ended up giving out loans that were equivalent to about, about a half percent of GDP over the course of four years, somewhere in that neighborhood. And the way that they operated is, is that the original idea, they thought, was that they would be giving the loans to utilities who would then start to set up the lines, because it really wasn't, you didn't really need to do, have new power so much as you needed to have just lines going out to the various places. So it was the distribution system that the, where the investment was focused? Exactly. And so, you know, it's quite different. Like the, T- the Tennessee Valley Authority was b- building of dams um, and, and things along those lines that probably would have been built by the Army Corps of Engineers anyway. But the REA actually was literally about distribution. And so they were just laying lines down. It was a lot much cheaper than building dams and things. And they could just attach to the grid. And it opened up all sorts of possibilities. I mean, a lot of farmers had actually been trying to play around with electricity by taking their automobiles and trucks and trying to run electricity off the batteries. Uh, and that just didn't, that wasn't working very well. But it opened the door to all sorts of productivity improvements and things like this. And it actually, you know, because there, it was loans, it was relatively inexpensive. 
uh, and mo- almost everybody paid back the loans. The one thing that happened was is that it opened the door to all sorts of electric cooperatives. So these days, like I'm originally from Kentucky, and I can remember growing up and listening to basketball games and stuff, and they always talked about the Kentucky Cooperative or, or various cooperatives. These were electric cooperatives who were sponsoring Kentucky basketball radio telecasts and stuff. And so they, they developed all these various uh, collectives, and, and so it was uh, you know, kind of a communal response to these type of things. So before before you go on, I want to take you. I want to get a better understanding of, of cooperatives. So my, I'm interpreting this as well. We're not loaning to a private corporation, but a co- collection of people that live in the in the area who are trying to provide for themselves. Exactly, and so the, the cooperative actually they they had to develop a corporate form, and they had a standardized you know. So it still had a corporate form in the sense, but the owners of the cooperative were the participants in the loan and, and who were getting the, the electricity. So is it fair to say that there was kind of a tradition in this? Because I hear, hear about farm cooperatives, which I think have a lot to do with uh, marketing products. Well, they did. And so they had, they, had both, they had some farm cooperatives in the 20s and 30s. And so some of them were designed for input cooperatives where they would cooperate on things like maybe owning tractors and things like that. They did have farm cooperatives that are marketing things, but this actually probably stimulated the cooperative movement more. Uh, the one feature about it, too, is it's very similar to the, the lending features that they had in cities, which was they had building and loans, and building and loans were a cooperative arrangement in the sense that the borrowers became owners of the building and loan while they were repaying their loan. And then once they'd repaid the loan, they, they were no longer owners unless they went, reinvested new money and things like this. And there was a similar system going on, actually, in mortgages and loaning in, in the farm sector as well, because they had a, an act in, I guess it was 1916, I think it was 1916, where they established these cooperative arrangements for borrowing through federal land banks. And in that case, what you did was you formed a group of people who wanted to get these loans, and then they had these land banks that would get, give the seed funding for the loans, and then they'd expand as they got more and more borrowers and things along those lines. The biggest problem, they had those both as private cooperatives as joint, through joint stock banks, and then they also had them as like a federal government cooperative where the seed money came out. And there was more, I don't know if it's federal control or not, but the joint stock banks actually had real problems. They almost all failed in the early 1930s. But the REA was very successful. Almost all the loans got repaid, uh, so the actual cost to the government of actually operating it was pretty low. So presumably the loan repayments w- were, uh, came out of, out of uh, fees for electricity? Yeah, basically fees for electricity. I think that, uh, you know, if, if the cooperative was having trouble, they might have, they, I'm, I can't, not ra- actually sure about this, but I have a feeling that if they couldn't cover the costs out of the fees, that they would have some kind of payment that you had that the various members had to make. So kind of like a membership uh, fee or something like. Well, like a membership fee, or like a you know, it's like with a condominium complex, right, mm-hmm. where you suddenly have some big disaster that happens, and so everybody's got to have an assessment so they can cover the cost of, of fixing things. And they were building a distribution network. Yeah, it was basically just putting down lines. They hardly ever built anything that was actually, you know, actually directly producing electricity, although sometimes they'd have to build, like, transformers to give boosts to the thing to, if, it was, if the distance was further. And, and if, so if I were a, a, a farmer living out, out in, in some, somewhere that was served, how, would, they, would the wires come into my house or would they go on the road and I would have to connect to them? 
so they set it up so the wires would come to the house, actually. I don't know exactly the situation. I mean, each farmer may have had to pay a... Um, each farmer may have had, had to pay an attachment fee or something along those lines. But basically, you're, they'll run the lines along the road. They actually had all sorts of things because, you know, one of the things they also did with the cooperatives was, and this is true for a lot of utilities at the time, too, and this for natural gas as well as electric utilities, is that they were actually in the business of also selling people appliances. Oh, yes. I'm old enough to remember that, that you could, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so... And so you, you get these various groups that, you know, so it's kind of like a side business or whatever to try to get you connected mm-hmm. and things like that. So they had all sorts of, you know, one of the things, too, is they were teaching people how to run these cooperatives. And so there was, a, there was an element of how to do this, and so they had all sorts of pamphlets that you could read to see what the right thing was. They had a lot of pamphlets that we looked at when we were doing research on this where they were describing, well, you know, here's how this can help you produce more eggs and more, more dairy and... and Here's some other things, other benefits of electricity. So the b- applications of electricity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what was what was the response? What was the up, uptake? Well, it was pretty good, actually. And so one of the things that happened is they electrify things pretty quickly. Now, almost all the action in the 1930s and the early 1940s is in the east. Uh, the, the electric grid out west was just not nearly as expanded yet, Um and so it was, hard, it was much harder to get attached because the distances were, were a lot further. So, uh, and also a lot of times out in the West where you're talking about ranch land and um, those kind of areas. So they, they did some activity out West, but mostly action in, until you got the, the larger grid out West was, th- was, through, was in the East Coast. Or not, was East of the Mississippi and the, you know, Missouri and Kansas and places like that that were close. Also, there wasn't much settlement as you went further west. But yeah, that's right. There, were, there was less settlement, and a lot of the settlement was based on where water was. Yeah. And so they, they were, it was going to be more effective, you know, so you had the Bureau of Reclamation building these dams. Uh, private, private agencies were building dams, too, although there were limits. The federal government had limits on your ability to build a dam, actually. And so if you were reasonably close to, like, a Reclamation Bureau project, in the West, then uh, you were likely to be picked, you could get hooked up through the REA pretty easily. Can you see the impact of this if you look at kind of macroeconomic statistics from that era? I mean, what did it do to the economy? Well, so uh, so Carl Kitchens, who's at Florida State, he's one of my colleagues, um, he and I worked on a paper where we actually, we didn't look at the macroeconomic things, we looked at the microeconomics mm-hmm. aspect. And so... Uh, you have to remember now that you know the farm sector was not in very good shape, and so a lot of times what you're doing in some of these areas is things are falling apart and people are leaving agriculture, and 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 so the REA has two things: it actually stimulated productivity, so we found pretty substantial increases in output per acre on farms, um, and at the same time it also kind of staved off all sorts of problems. So instead of seeing a decline in the purchase of farm machinery. It actually offset declines in farm, farm machinery and offset um, loss of workers and a variety of other things because it made the workers more productive. And a lot, another thing it did in rural areas was actually reduce things like infant mortality um, because then you could get more access to clean water and, and boil water, and, and particularly boiling water and boiling milk was a, very important um, to make sure that you didn't didn't spread disease among infants and, and among women who are about to give birth. So it actually had pretty substantial positive effects at, the, at, at, at each local level. So what we did was we looked at the variation of 
how much, how many, the, the areas that got REA loans and the areas that did not. And then we made these comparisons before and after. So it's kind of like a difference in difference analysis mm-hmm. to try to see what was going on. So we feel pretty good that we, we got a pretty good estimate of what was happening and, and what, how effective it had been. So it sounds like it was a really good investment overall. Oh, yeah, very good investment. So studying the New Deal, the best investments that I can see in the New Deal were their investments in public works and relief projects. The Homeowners Loan Corporation was another example where they actually um, replaced a lot of toxic assets on banks' books, and then, and, and then they refinanced a whole bunch of loans for people. Uh, you know, the New Deal has a mixed bag. I mean, AAA helped farmers, but actually hurt farm workers and share tenants and stuff. And, and so, you know, the New Deal is so big that it's kind of hard to, to get your fingers about everything around it. And it had so many different pieces to it that some were good and some were not so good. Was there, was there a similar program that extended telephone service into rural areas? Um, you know, not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen that. Mm, okay. Uh, and my understanding is that the REA still exists. It still lives inside the Department of Agriculture. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that one. I, I know that it existed as of the mid-1990s. And so I haven't I haven't checked. So you actually saw it in the in yeah. I want to don't want to make a claim that I'm a, I'm an expert on this, but I did run it down, and it seemed to there there are still people working on it, and a similar kind of program loans and loan guarantees and some grants. Yep, that makes sense. And yeah. so well, you know, think about this. I mean, most government programs don't seem to go away, and <laughs> uh, and so I think that that I, I know that over time they shifted because they were shifting into new things. And so there's always opportunities, and you know, farmers are always looking for ways to get loans because they, you know, you get paid at the end of the harvest, and so you've got you've got this yeah. problem. Um, and so I'm not surprised that it still existed. You know, the, the one program that did close was the Homeowners Loan Corporation. When they finished, when they finished everybody paying off their loans, they actually closed in '51, uh, and that's relatively rare. So a lot of the New Deal programs that they started in the '30s are still with us today. So now there's a a significant federal push, particularly under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that uh, just passed last year, to uh, do a similar thing with broadband, extending broadband across the, the nation. Do you see the analogy? And I guess what I'm looking for is, are there lessons that we can learn from the REA that might inform um, what we're doing with broadband? Oh, yeah, I definitely think so, because the, 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 it was basically the same issue. It's, it's like connection. Um, in this case, it's connection to get access to information, and certainly having broadband and the Internet is very, very important. And so I, I don't know whether they're running a loan program or if, if it's just a pure subsidy program. I actually like the loans programs. The loan programs in the New Deal actually they lost money, very small amounts of money, or they actually did things, but they also... You know, it didn't cost didn't cost taxpayers very much because they had small losses or they actually had small small increases in in or they made some money, and the REA definitely covered all its costs and stuff. So it was a very successful program in that way. So I would I would like I I think if I was to prefer it, I'd prefer to have loan programs over subsidies on this particular aspect. Mm-hmm. But I think it's actually I, I know multiple people have talked to me about the idea of having broadband, and it seems like it makes perfect sense to do it in the same way they did with the REA. Yeah, and it seems like it's a really a great opportunity to learn something from history that, through your work and the work of your colleagues, has been very well documented. Uh, yeah, definitely so. Now, the world was a different place back then, too. You know, the, the, the level of federal government activity 
coming into the New Deal was much, much lower. Like it's like they were spending about five five percent of GDP at the time, and so now we spend about twenty percent as the federal government, and then state governments do this as well. One might think maybe we can do it better, but I'm not sure that that's a good. Um, extension to make on this. Uh, whether or not the government's good at stimulating technology. So that, that's a big question about the new program that, that they just put in place. Yeah. Now, how well do they, are they able to pick the winners? I mean, I think that they're most successful, I think, when they're, when they're actually promoting fundamental research that, that doesn't seem to be a natural way to go. Uh, I, I'm not sure how well they're, how good they are at actually taking that and transferring it to consumer goods and things along those lines. And so that's always been an open question. But if we go back to the REA, that we were in a different stage of history and uh, we're lower on the learning curve and opportunities for what I would say is uh, cost-effective achievement were probably greater at that point. Oh, definitely so. And, and so one of the things, too, is, is that, you know, you know, think about the 1930s relative to the situation we're in today. I mean, in the 1930s, you know, the farm sector was it was one of the worst, hardest hit sectors of everybody. But you look overall at the entire economy; the economy was producing only 70 percent of what it had produced in 1929. Uh, when you get to 1932 and 1933, they don't catch up to 1929 until like 1937, and on a per capita basis, it's not till 1939. And you have unemployment rates above 20% for four years in the 1930s and above 10% for the entire decade. So, I mean, this, is, this, this was a total disaster. I don't think people realize just how, just how bad it was relative to what they're seeing today. You know, yeah, the COVID yeah. problem was, was amazing because we had that very short period where we shut down the economy. And we could afford to to some extent because we're much richer now than we were in the 30s. But we came back almost immediately because we really it was just a temporary shutdown. And if I knew the true answer to why everything fell apart in the 1930s, I would be a rich man. <laughs> well, I hope you'll be able to find that answer in the next couple of years. I, I just I, I'm curious what advice would you give to somebody, um, an economist who's going to write a grant proposal to evaluate the impacts of this of uh, a federal loan program for. Uh, for expanding broadband. Well, so I would I would try to you know the modern way to to test these things to actually do it would be to see if you can run randomized controlled trials, and so the idea would be okay you've got a budget and you randomly pick this group's going to get something and this group's not you know you want it to be similar in in nature and then and do do the comparisons. So when you're you're studying the New Deal you don't have that opportunity because it was. Uh, you know, we're just being ob- obser- observing what was happening back at the time. So a lot of people, when they do, like, uh, stuff for development economics and things like that, actually do do these kind of randomized trials, or when they study uh, various training programs and stuff. So that's a good so – when you use the randomized trial, you can get a, a better feel because then you you're actually can see, well, this actually seems to be causal because it was random as to whether or not you got this kind of thing. Yeah, it might be harder to do an RCTs in a political environment. Uh, on, on, on the other hand, it would seem to me that uh, as, uh, as these pro- this kind of program roll, rolls out, some get it sooner than others, and so there may be a, you may be able to do some time series analysis. A lot of people have done some analysis using that kind of roll the rollout differences and stuff. 
But you want the rollouts to be random as well to get the best action in those kind of things. It would be good. And I think there's a tension between the politics of allocation and the inability of government and all the rest of us to control how things actually work. This is fascinating. I really appreciate so much that you spent the time with us. It's a really interesting uh, piece of of history from which we can uh, learn something about what not only what life was like and how government intervention had some some effect, but it seems like it it informs what we're doing right now. Yep, definitely so. And and so thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed getting this. It it was great to talk to you, and I look forward to following your, your work. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Infrastructure Show. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, please subscribe to our podcast and encourage your friends to join us too. The Infrastructure Show is recorded at the Studio Media Recording Company in Evanston, Illinois, under the direction of Scott Steinman, recording engineer with a commitment to great sound. Our producer is Marion Sowers, a journalist with a passion for infrastructure. And I am Professor Joseph Schofer, Few people are more curious about infrastructure than I.